1955, and it was from a prophet in the Old Testament who foretold the coming of Jesus 400 years before he came. Uh, Zechariah, and in chapter 9, on page 955, I'm going to read just the two verses, verses 9 and 10. You see the heading there, the coming of Zion's king. And this is what the prophet Zechariah foretold. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, before we look at that a little bit, uh, why don't you stand again? Would you stand? And uh, maybe greet somebody near you that you don't already know. You regular members of St. Mark's, go out of your way to say hello to someone. Introduce yourself. And uh, do continue these conversations over coffee afterwards. There'll be coffee and mince pies next door. And if you're a, a regular here at St. Mark's, you've just met somebody who's new or visiting, uh, or guest, member of somebody's family, then uh, do take them next door afterwards and, uh, and give, them, uh, uh, give them not only something to eat and drink, but an introduction to your friends as well. Now, let me pray before we go any further. Lord, we've welcomed one another here this evening, but we welcome you by your Spirit to teach us about the meaning of Christmas for Jesus' sake. Amen. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. Merry Christmas, bah humbug. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned the nephew. What right have you to be dismal? What right have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Bah humbug. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. Out with Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money, a time for finding yourself a year older but not an hour richer? If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own Christmas pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Well, I don't know if you're planning to go to the Old Vic to see the play version of A Christmas Carol, uh, or perhaps the film, The Man Who Invented Christmas. The Garden, Guardian newspaper was not complimentary, in fact, rather Scrooge-like about it. Uh, they wrote this, this entirely terrible film feels about as Christmassy as watching England go out of the World Cup at the group stage. <laughs> the role of Charles Dickens is a kind of wacky, saccharine, mutton-chop, whisker-god-bless-you fantasy comedy of what it was like when he wrote A Christmas Carol and thus supposedly invented Christmas. For a moment, it looks as if the film is rather daringly going to suggest that Dickens himself is morally flawed and must go through a Scrooge-like dark night of the soul, a trip back to his own Christmas past, the blacking factory of his boyhood. 
but there's no question of a real look at Christmas present for his friends and relatives, and certainly no Christmas yet to come when his marriage collapsed. No, he just tends to give the fictional Scrooge a superfluous haranguing for being a skinflint. But all this does raise the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. Indeed, our own Christmases. For example, I wonder if your Christmas past was a childish delusion. That's what you often hear, don't you? It's, it's infantile. We grow out of it as part of our education. While we're children, we believe in Father Christmas and the baby Jesus. Christmas is for children, they say. But we grow out of belief in Father Christmas and tooth fairies. So if we're to mature as individuals and as humanity, we grow out of belief in God. Belief in God is infantile. So said Richard Dawkins in Thought for the Day. Humanity, he said, can now leave the crybaby phase and finally come of age. Only there's a problem with this view. Those who use the infantile argument have to explain why so many people discover God later in life. I mean, how many people do you know who began to believe in Santa Claus or fairies at the bottom of the garden in adulthood? Speaking personally, I did believe in Father Christmas until I was about five, and then my older sister spoilt it for me for the rest of my life. But I didn't begin to believe in God until I was 19. You see, those who become believers later in life certainly don't regard this as any kind of regression or degeneration. A spectacular example was the Oxford professor, Anthony Flew, the most brilliant and famous atheist philosopher of his time. He started to believe in God in his 80s, and he wrote this book, Not There Is No, But There Is A God. And if you like, I'll borrow it. I'll lend it to you if you'd like to borrow it. I won't give it to you. I'm a bit Scrooge-like tonight myself, but I will lend it to you if you'd like to read it. Now, what's your ghost of Christmas past? Let me go further. Have you ever wondered about the ghost of Christmas past for Jesus himself? 400 years before he was born, the prophet Zechariah saw his coming. Did you note those words? Rejoice greatly. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend to the ends of the earth. What a claim. Not just a king, you notice, but one who can proclaim peace to the nations. An effective general secretary of the United Nations, if you like, who's able, actually able to bring world peace. And Christians believe Jesus is that person. He's the peacemaking king. Uh, there's a few potential kings in our royal family. One of them's just about to get married. 
And by and large, they do lots of very good work. They oil the wheels of international relations, of world trade, of political negotiation, but they can't bring world peace. It's asking too much of them. And yet the claim here of Jesus is just that, that he's the universal peace-proclaiming king. Or as another prophet, Isaiah, put it, the whole government, global government, is on his shoulders. He's the sovereign reigning in the palace, the prime minister in number 10, the chancellor of the exchequer, the home secretary, the foreign secretary, and the whole cabinet all rolled into one. And he's the key to world peace. Jesus, the king of peace. Now, what do you make of that claim? Here are two possible responses to it. Response number one. Maybe you say, if I can anticipate your objection, then he's not making a very good job of it, is he? He's had 2,000 years in government, which is a lot longer than most governments have a chance. But the world doesn't seem to be much better governed or more peaceful as a result. There's still war and enmity, in particular in the part of the world where he was born. Indeed, it's worse than that. More people died in war in the last century than in all the previous 20 centuries together since Christ was born. It's getting worse. And here's the greatest objection, that religion actually causes war. People say religion has caused all the major wars and evils in the inhumanity of man to man. And only when religious faith is banished from the face of the earth will we at last live in peace. My friend Christopher Hitchens wrote a book exactly along those lines, the title of which was God is Not Great, a play on the Islamic claim. Well, it's a familiar theme. What are we to say to this? The first thing is possibly to agree that religious violence is an evil and ugly thing in whatever form it manifests itself. All of us need to support work to expose and challenge religious violence, and we should make every effort to rid the world of this baleful influence, religious warmongering from the crusade to the jihad. But the question is, is this a necessary feature of religion? Now, again, maybe we have to admit, maybe for some it is. IS, Daesh, certainly have waged war in the Middle East in pursuit of their Islamic interpretation. But against popular simplistic opinions, not all religious beliefs teach the same thing. Evil and aggression isn't a feature of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, again, we have to admit people can do terrible things, even atrocious things, in the name of the Christian faith. But when you turn to the source material of the faith, you quickly see they do those atrocities not as a consequence of Jesus' teaching, but in defiance of it, in spite of it. Jesus of Nazareth did no violence to anyone. 
He said, blessed are the, are the peacemakers. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He taught us to turn the other cheek, to forgive without limit. So isn't it significant, it is to my mind, that opposition today to the religious persecution of minorities, whether they're Christian or Muslim, Hindu or Jewish, isn't today being conducted mainly by secular atheists or humanists. It's conducted more by Christian groups than by secular groups. It was Christian mission agencies that were first alerted to the plight of the Rohingya Muslims. Even we ourselves were praying for James and Joanna Price, our mission partners among Rohingya refugees, five years ago before the world woke up to it. So here's the thing. There's no doubt that religion can generate violence, but it's not alone in this. It's, in fact, the minor player in world wars. Take just the last century, the millions who disappeared in South America as a result of ruthless campaigns of right-wing political ideologies, the greater millions who died as a result of Nazism, the even greater millions who died in China from Mao's Cultural Revolution, the millions exterminated in Cambodia in the name of Pol Pot's socialism, and the even larger, perhaps 26 million, who died in Stalin's Russia as a result of Marxist communist ideologies. And all those genocidal terrors were not despite the atheistic teaching of the ideologies behind them, but in faithful pursuit of those ideologies to their logical conclusion. No, the charge goes in fact the other way. The majority of the evil in the world over the last hundred years has been the result of atheism. So the reality of the situation is that human beings are capable of both violence and moral excellence, and that both these may be provoked by worldviews, whether they're religious or otherwise. So that's a first possible response. Let me offer another, a second response to this charge of the ineffectiveness of the king of peace. And I want to suggest not the ghost, but the real Christmas past, the real Christmas present, and the real Christmas future. Take the past. One day in the past, Christian believers have faith that Jesus did bring peace. The most important that we need, that is peace with God. It's what the video with the teddy bear was all about. Imagine as Jesus grew up to become a carpenter, what he took on his shoulder, the timber from the timber yard to his carpenter's shop. Maybe he had premonitions then. Because 30 years after his birth, he took on his shoulder the two beams of a cross, and he was crucified on it. And that was the day, not the day of his birth, but the day leading to his death that Zechariah foresaw. The day that the king would come, humble and lowly, riding on a donkey, Palm Sunday. 
Rembrandt saw it as well. He painted, you know, these two nativity scenes with the cross in the ladder and the roof beams in the stable background against which the ladder was leaning. It formed a cross. And Rembrandt was deliberately illustrating how his birth on Christmas Day looked forward to the day when he took our sins upon him, our separation and alienation from God. And that's why we call it Good Friday, when he carried our sins to the cross and he proclaimed peace and extended his reign over the earth. And that's why there are more people today in the world and right across every nation of the world today who have welcomed the King of Peace. He actually referred to his beckoning cross as his throne. He called his crucifixion his coronation. And as you know, in ignorant irony, they did put a crown on his head, a crown of thorns. But that's why at midnight next Saturday on Christmas Eve, we will do an extraordinary thing when you think about it, hold a service of Holy Communion. We will celebrate the midnight of his birth by remembering his death. And what an extraordinary thing to do until you realize the significance of it. The day he made peace. One day he did in the past. And I wonder, have you put your trust in that Christmas past? The real one. The Christ who was born and lived and died for us and then rose again. Secondly, think about the future, not the past now, but the future. One day, the claim is that he will bring peace. One day in the future, he will create universal peace. The issue is one of timing. One day, he will rule the, the universe visibly. And I know we think 2,000 years is such a long time, but in the light of eternity, it's just a fleeting moment. One day, he will put all things right. And he has the authority to claim to do that if, and this is the big thing that we must all actually investigate, if we're not to put our head in the sand, if he died and rose again and came back to life, it means he's alive today and will live forever. One day he did bring peace. One day he will bring peace. And again, I ask, have you put your hope in that future day? Or if not, what is our hope for the future beyond the end of this life? And thirdly, one day in the present, he does bring peace. And this could be the real Christmas present. Any day in the present, he makes peace, starting with each of us individually, if we allow him. He brings us home to God when we welcome him into our lives. And that's the start of reconciled human relations on earth. The fact that the world is in many places still at war is simply a sign that they haven't submitted to the king of peace. Well, whose fault is that? 
There's no peaceful rule if we don't submit to the King of Peace, who knows us intimately and understands us completely. And even here tonight, he's ready to listen to us if we turn to him and speak to him, pray to him. So I wonder if you've done that. And if not, why not tonight? Make him your home secretary and welcome him into your family and social life. Make him your chancellor of the exchequer and trust him with all you have and all you own. Make him your foreign secretary and let him guide all your relationships. Make him your prime minister and your sovereign. Commit your whole life to him. Because a real Christmas in the present is when Christ's presence, if you'll forgive the pun, is with you. The best Christmas present you could ever be given. If you want to make that prayer, let me pray and lead us in prayer now. As we sit, let us pray. And here's a prayer we sometimes offer as a prayer for anyone at Christmas time. It comes from the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Do you know that verse at the end? O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Let me make it personal, individual. And if you want to pray this prayer, pray this for yourself. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to me, I pray. Cast out my sin and enter in. Be born in me today. Amen. If that was a significant moment of prayer for you, either for the first time or going 